The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're working our fingers to the bone every week to bring you the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And today we're going to do something that we seem to be doing more and more often here on Real Life Real Estate, which is we're going to update you on the latest legal and legislative issues that are probably affecting your business. If you are a real estate investor, we're going to talk about the recent decision by the Northern Ohio District Federal Court about the CDC eviction ban. And then when we're done with that, we're going to talk about the new PPP loans and the rules around those and whether or not you might be able to apply for one this time. To help us talk about this first complicated topic, I have as my guest Maurice Thompson, who is the executive director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law. He's an attorney who has been following the CDC eviction ban case here in Ohio very closely, and he's joining us by phone from his home in Columbus. Maurice, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Hi, Vina. Good to be with you. I wish I didn't have to have you here as often as I seem to. You, you, you're, you're our constant, uh, you're our constant translator <laughs> of what is. Yeah, government is uh, certainly too much involved in your your businesses these days. It'd be nice if you could do a string of episodes that did, didn't have anything to do with government. Yes. How to manage your properties most and, appropriately. And never had to say, watch out, watch out if you're doing this now because there's this new law that affects how you go about doing this. Uh, so there's been a lot of confusion and consternation over this decision last week in the uh, case filed actually by uh, one of our guests about a month ago, um, uh, Eric Woolwind, uh, against the CDC uh, over the eviction ban. And there was a whole bunch of celebration when the announcement first came out that the court said, oh, yeah, you, you, the CDC can't do that. And then there's been a whole bunch of wait. How come there's still an eviction ban? So can you can you tell us what was actually decided in this case? Sure. So I filed the complaint in that case and arranged for the litigation to be primarily piloted from that point on by Pacific Legal Foundation, who has a lot more experience suing the federal government than I do. Um, typically, 1851, we handle state and local governments. Um, the the court ruled in our favor. So this case, for for your listeners who may already not have a a point of familiarity here, 
it's a lot like some of the litigation we've handled over the past year challenging a lot of these pandemic orders where the argument is, look, the legislature could not have possibly delegated this broad of authority to a bureaucrat, and if it did so, it's unconstitutional. So we made that two-step argument to the court, and the court agreed that Congress could not possibly have delegated this much authority to the CDC to issue a nationwide moratorium on evictions um, through this 1943 Public Health Service Act legislation. So the court agreed and issued a declaratory judgment saying just that, that the, the CDC does not have the authority, uh, and if it did, it would be unconstitutional. So the court has to really strain the statute to find that there's no such authority in the statute to avoid uh, an unconstitutional determination. So um, that's called a declaratory judgment. The court did not issue an injunction against the CDC uh, engaging in further enforcement because it didn't find irreparable harm. I, I think that's primarily going to end up being academic and semantic for, for most of your listeners who may confront this issue in one way or another. Um, the, and the reason I say that is because the on-the-ground mechanics of how this works is that you would attach a decision like this, this one in particular if you're in Ohio, as an exhibit to any eviction complaint that you file. And the courts that were um, obstructing evictions solely in reliance on the CDC order, um, well, you know, if they wanted to slow walk them, they're going to slow walk them anyway, and this won't change that. But because, as we might recall, before the pandemic, some courts were slow walking evictions already, um, and that's in the, the some of the major metropolitan areas in Ohio. But um, if there are judges who uh, had stopped processing evictions solely based upon the CDC order, they're going to see that the, the order is unconstitutional and that it's not a basis for doing that. Mm-hmm. So here I am way down in Hamilton County. This was decided right. up in you know northeastern Ohio. And I have a, I'm filing an eviction and I have a tenant who fills out the CDC form and says, thus, I do not have to pay my rent. And also you cannot continue with this eviction case. Does this case, does this judgment mean that I can go to the court and I can say, yes, I can. And here's why, because a federal court said so. Yeah, that's right. So I would file if, you know, I'm in the Southern district, so. Uh, for folks listening, uh, again, this is <clears throat> a, a little bit of a, uh, of a nuance. Um, Ohio is divided into two federal districts. Basically, everything north of Columbus is the northern district. Everything south of Columbus, including Columbus, is the southern district. So this is a judge in the northern district. So if you want to get hyper-technical, this really only binds everybody in the northern district, north of Columbus. However, you know, uh, courts have always considered the other district to be persuasive and uh, i actually know of no cases where you have um kind of competing decisions in the northern versus the southern districts and there, and there isn't deference so if i'm in columbus i'm in cincinnati i'm going to go ahead and file my eviction complaint and make sure that i attach as an exhibit this court ruling as a basis why i should be able to commence it notwithstanding the cdc order i should also add and you may have already covered this on your show at some point, there are a number of bases, even with the CDC order, where you could still evict tenants. Um, it's really only non-payment of rent the CDC order covered in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So the 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 thing that I hear listeners thinking, because I have that magical power, is there are some pretty severe penalties in the CDC order for continuing with an eviction once right. once the tenant has filled out that form. And I hear them thinking, yeah, but if the judge doesn't agree, am I now subject to those huge fines that are built into the CDC order in the first place? Well, the CDC can't enforce an order that's not legal and that's been declared unlawful. So, you know, that's where, again, I come back with the fact that the failure to enjoin the CDC from, from enforcing the act is somewhat semantic because they would actually have to sue you in court to um, enjoin, you know, to, to prosecute you or attempt to fine you. And the court would just say, well, look, you know, this, this citizen relied upon um, the, the, the decision of Judge Calabrese in the Northern District, which is a very well-reasoned decision and applicable at the time. So, so no, I, first of all, nobody has been fined or prosecuted thus far nationwide. I don't think that the CDC has the resources, and I think it's all bark um, and no bite. But notwithstanding that, um, you can certainly rely upon the federal courts in, you know, as a basis for your action. So I, I don't think people should really fear that. How is this different than the case that happened in Texas about a month before that is actually being appealed? Yeah, um, well... First of all, the Ohio case has not been appealed, as I talk to you here today, so it is a little bit different. And that's, that's one reason why lawyers will sometimes go for a declaratory judgment, by the way, instead of an injunction. So even though it's causing some consternation to some of your listeners, one of the benefits of going that route is the court says the CDC eviction moratorium is unconstitutional or illegal, but doesn't. Um, enjoin the CDC, and that prevents the CDC from immediately going up to the appellate court and getting a stay of that court decision. So the CDC hasn't been able to do that in our litigation here in Ohio. So that is one benefit of the declaratory judgment approach. I do believe that the the decision in Texas is on appeal, but again, it goes back to that two-step process I mentioned to you. Either Congress didn't delegate this much authority to the CDC in the first place, and that's the basis that we want on, or if it did, that's unconstitutional. And that's the basis that the Texas case was won upon. The Texas court said um, the commerce power of the Constitution doesn't give Congress this much power over these, these local evictions, these lower, local land use issues. Um, the problem is the New Deal era really expanded commerce power in an unfathomable way. And we are all, as public interest attorneys, um, trying to roll that back, um, and that's a you know if that court decision were to hold up, that would be a major step towards rolling it back. But it hasn't been rolled back quite that far at this point. So that case is a little bit more of a hail mary than ours. I'm looking at the Department of Justice's website, which is not a place you maybe want to hang out a lot unless yeah, you're gross. just looking to be angry. Uh, and their uh, comments uh, on this yesterday was the Department of Justice respectfully disagrees with the March 10th decision of the district court in Skyworks versus CDC, concluding that the moratorium exceeds the CDC's statutory authority. 
In the department view, the department's view, that decision conflicts with the text of the statute, Congress's ratification of the moratorium and the ruling of other courts. And then it goes on to say, in any event, the decision only applies to the particular plaintiffs in that case. Do you, do you believe that that's, that's true and only the fo- folks whose name were on that lawsuit get to go forward on this? Because the DOJ no, like seems to. <laughs> yeah, like most things the Department of Justice um, says, I think that that's probably inaccurate. Um, and, um, and almost all of it is inaccurate. And the last part is, is certainly inaccurate because the judge's ruling is that the CDC doesn't have the power. So that applies to everybody and anybody. That doesn't just apply to the clients. It's not like the CDC has the power to enact a nationwide eviction moratorium against you and I, but not against the plaintiffs in the case. There's nothing special about the plaintiffs in the case. They're simply people um, with rental properties like you and I. So, so no, I think that the, this is something where if a landlord wants to rely on this ruling, they can certainly do so. Which brings us to the consternation part. The, uh, I myself don't fully understand why if a federal court decides something, that doesn't mean they've decided it for all of us. Yeah. So what, what has to happen for this just to be ruled wrong and go away in the whole country? Yeah, good question. So... <clears throat> Um, we could start at 1776 and move forward from there, if you'd like. And somewhere, somewhere in the 60s, um, this rift developed between "quote unquote" conservative judges and "quote unquote" liberal judges on nationwide injunctions. Um, with conservative judges taking the position, and this really heightened. And and many of you, your listeners, may recall a number of nationwide injunctions were issued against Trump administration policies by Ninth Circuit courts. You know, one judge out of Hawaii or California would put a stop to some new policy of the Trump administration in 2017, and conservatives cried foul. Um, so we're not going to do this as a matter of principle. We think we only are going to enjoin, um, you know, the law in this particular area. So conservatives had this... Uh, aversion to nationwide injunctions um, where they might say, hey, this law is unconstitutional, but we're not formally going to enjoin the agency from taking further action. You know, as a practical matter, it ends up not mattering much in a case like this. Um, But I I do think it's a little bit silly as well. If the CDC can't prohibit you from wearing wearing a red T-shirt, then it doesn't have the power to do it any more in Texas or Alabama than it does here in Ohio. Mm So are are we going to see this happening, even if it has to happen court by court nationwide, are we going to see it happen before the ban just expires? Yeah, that's a good question. So this ban has come and gone a few times now in a few different variants. Um, the most recent ban, the ban that we challenged, is now set to expire at the end of March. Um, the hope is that these kinds of rulings hasten the expiration of this ban. Uh, and it, at minimum, if it comes back, it's going to come back in some different kind of format. Um, so, for example, uh, what, what our court said, it did not say that Congress couldn't do this itself, so that Congress can't give away this power to an administrative agency to do anything that it thinks is reasonable to repel 
infectious, infectious diseases. So, you know, one takeaway from this might be when this thing expires on the 31st, Congress would have to act itself. And against that particular position, you know, the constitutional argument would be more important than our statutory argument. But the other thing is Congress is exceptionally dysfunctional and doesn't act very much at all. So I've got to think um, if we get to March 31st, I would not expect Congress to re-up this thing on its own or craft its own new eviction moratorium. So I think we can be hopeful that this will expire nationwide there. Mm-hmm. Except I just read a new bill uh presented by Ilian, uh, Ilian Omar uh, that said full eviction ban until January 31st and you can't hold the tenant responsible for the rent and you can't charge yeah. late fees and you can't report it to their credit. But that's okay because you also don't have to make your mortgage payments, Mr. Landlord, because the bank can't do any of that to you either. So I, I, I read lots of bills from the Ohio General Assembly less from Congress, that I sometimes like, um, and they always end up going nowhere. So I think um, a lot of people are whipped up into a fury about this bill or that coming from um, our current Congress. But the reality is, um, for every bill you read about in the newspaper, only one in, you know, one in 100 will actually make it to law. Well... Fingers crossed that you have the right of it and that we see the end of this on March 31st and actually start to see the uh, $25 billion in rent help that was meant to offset all of this showing up somewhere (laughs) because the folks I'm talking to are telling me their tenants are applying for it and not getting it. So it's all kind of a big mess, but at least this piece of it sounds like good news for us Ohioans. At the end of the day, you know, um, I'm a landlord also, and I can tell you that paying attention to who your tenants are is one of the most important things you can do, and um, trying to treat them as fairly and evenly as you can when times are good, because every once in a while, the government will give them the matches to burn down your house, and if you haven't treated them well, or you haven't been very meticulous in who you put into your houses, then they will go ahead and burn down that house, so there's a a lesson in this for all of us. Thank you very much for your time today, Maurice. Uh, Maurice Thompson is the executive director of the 1851 Center for Constitutional Law. For more information about him and information about property rights cases that are happening all the time now, you can go to ohioconstitution.org. That's ohioconstitution.org. And we will be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Probably ought to give the numbers in the studio in case any of y'all have questions about our next segment, which is about the new PPP loan program. Yes, sort of like the one from last year, but sort of different too. And this has been a topic that a lot of folks have had a lot of questions on. And we're about to have somebody who's done a lot of research into that program uh, come on and talk about it. Our number here in the studio is one eight seven 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 two nine six five eight eight seven 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 two nine six five eight and the email if you'd like to email in a question is askvina at gmail dot com that's a s k v like and victor e n a at gmail dot com and 
while I'm throwing web addresses out there for you, how about CincinnatiRIA.com? CincinnatiREIA.com. Meeting tomorrow night online. We're getting down to the to the end of the twice monthly online meetings, folks. So if you're someplace else in the country and you've been meaning to check out the awesome nonprofit Cincinnati RIA, it's you know, you'll still be able to you'll still be able to see the meeting simulcast over the next few months, but uh First meeting in April is a live one, the one tomorrow night, all online, and check this out, it is a show-me-the-money panel. It is a panel of lenders who have various loan programs ranging from like hard money to conventional to things that are kind of a combination of hard money and conventional. They're like bank loans, but they have some... They have some repair money included in them. So uh, lots of different things out there. And this is this panel is going to discuss what's available, what it takes to qualify, down payments, rates, all of the stuff that you want to know about. The early meeting at 6 o'clock is a debate. It is a cage match between two folks who are big fans of retirement plans. One, debating the side of why, what you all you need is a self-directed IRA and the other one contending that nope, self-directed 401ks are much, much better. So you can sign up to get your link to attend that meeting at CincinnatiRIA.com. It is of course free to members and first time guests. CincinnatiRIA.com. Check it out. My guest today is Mr. Scott Ellsworth, not coincidentally a past president of Cincinnati RIA but also a CPA and real estate investor himself who does an awful lot of work with an awful lot of real estate investors and business owners and individuals and therefore has found that um, he has a bunch of clients seriously curious about this loan program for businesses where you can get super low interest rate loans and maybe even then have those forgiven. Since the PPP loan program has uh, made a reappearance starting at the end of last year, and since there are some new rules, we thought it was time to bring Scott back and get updated with that. Scott, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Well, thanks, Dina. You're so, so welcome. And I know you're so excited about the new PPP loan program because it is. <laughs> it's it's super exciting, but there's something we need to get out of the way right now. And that is tell us what this loan program is for. What are PPP loans for? So it's they're called the Paycheck Protection Program loan. So they're supposed to keep people employed. <clears throat> so it is for businesses, uh, a number of sizes, but basically small businesses, medium size too. I mean, you can be fairly decent employee size and get this money. It is to cover payroll um, and with some of the new um, uh, rules, you can use it for a lot of other things, general operating expenses um, that make it a little bit more usable. And if you use it for those uh for those expenses, um, 60% needs to be go to payroll. Uh, but if you use it for those expenses, uh, then they will forgive that loan, and it becomes basically a grant, free money from the government. 
Although we can afford to do it as in the story, but it's free, free money from the government. <laughs> okay, so your typical small to medium-sized real estate investor doesn't have traditional employees. They, they have contractors. You know, they have people who come and fix up houses and they get paid and get issued a 1099 at the end of the year. They have real estate agents. They have CPAs, all of whom are just, they're not employees. They may have an administrator who lives in the Philippines and is a virtual Mm -hmm. assistant. Do any of those kinds of people apply, uh, 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 apply when you're talking about covering payroll? No, unfortunately, they don't. Now, your your contractor who is uh, doing the plumbing at the house you're working on or managing your house and you're paying with a 1099, they can apply for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the but but you can't claim them as your employees. But what you get to claim is based on your self-employment income it's got to be earned income so one of the things that that investors uh sort of got uh the not the good side of this deal is is that if i only have rental property and i have no employees um and unless i'm doing something a little more complicated with structuring my own uh management company uh that doesn't count um which was really hard because the real estate investors who own rental property still have all those types of expenses that they're that they're going to need to to keep things running during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So no, can't use that. That is payroll, um, but you need to be basically doing some Schedule C for most smaller ones or S corps or partnerships where there's earned income, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you can use your earned income as a basis for those loans. And they they made some modifications to uh, how you calculate that that is very beneficial, um, that some people that weren't eligible the first time are now eligible the second time for a first-time loan. Does that make sense? Yes. That makes sense, does it? <laughs> no. <laughs> so there are there are there are two loans now. When they came out with the new program, they have the the PPP draw one loans are back. Uh, same kind of rules, except a slight change that Mr. Biden made um, on the third of March. Um, and then you have PPP loan two, draw two loans, which are if you got the first loan back in in March of last year, April, May of last year, those people can apply again if they meet certain requirements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to I want to roll back one more second to 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 talk okay. about to talk about who 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 amongst our listeners needs to keep listening and who can get on with their day. Because <laughs> there's a, there's so, there's a bunch so the people- there's a bunch of our listeners who are are thinking, well, you know, I'm the only employee of my business, so I probably can't do this, but there have been other folks out there for actually you're one of them for years telling people to set up their rental or flipping business in a way that paid them a salary. And it wasn't for this reason, because we didn't know this reason was going to come about. It was, it was for the purposes of being able to open up self-directed IRAs. Exactly. Right. 
So we probably yeah, have IRAs and 401ks. we probably have a number of folks out there who listened, and they structure their business in such a way that it brings in rental income, but then it pays them a salary, or it brings in flip income, and then it pays them a salary. Their salary, you're saying, would actually be a basis for applying for one of these forgivable loans. Uh, correct. And actually, one of the problems with the first round of PPP was that let's say I had a business flipping. Now, we know that when people flip, um, they don't always have winners, right? Mm-hmm. Some some, uh, some don't go well. Or wholesalers, right? They 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 bring in a hundred grand in wholesale fees, but they spend ninety grand in expenses. Right? Wow. So they only have a ten thousand dollar profit. Uh-huh. Well, that's an extreme, but let's let's just call that. Maybe they bring in fifty thousand income and they spend thirty thousand in 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 expenses. So they have twenty thousand profit. Well, the original PPP loans only allowed you to base it on the net profit. But on March 3rd of this year, they said, hey, for this round, one and two, so if you didn't get a first one, because we have people that lost money. They they did wholesaling, $30,000 in wholesaling, but they had $35,000 in costs between mileage and all that stuff. They had a negative number, so they couldn't have a PPP loan. There was nothing to base it on. There's no income, right? Mm-hmm. So they can't do it. Well. Biden, which I think was actually pretty wise, so uh, he said, the administration said, we don't think it's for that purpose. It's supposed to be to help you pay for a lot of the expenses you've got. So now the person who had $50,000 in uh, revenue can base their PPP loan on 50000 not the $20,000 in profit. Hmm. Okay. And the people that the people that lost money and couldn't even apply for one can now apply based on if I've got thirty thousand dollars in wholesale revenue or flipping revenue, whatever it would be, I can use that amount as the basis for my loan where before I had a loss and I could was not even entitled to anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a big game changer. Actually, I have a whole bunch more questions, but I'm go- we're going to take a break first because if I start getting into these questions, we'll, we'll we'll never get to our break. I also want to uh, invite questioner questions from listeners at eight seven 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 two nine six five eight. Again, that's eight seven 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 two nine six five eight, or at askvina at gmail dot com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Had a couple of guests today, but currently it is Mr. Scott Ellsworth, CPA, who is talking to us about the second round of PPP loans, which partly extended the first round and partly created a second draw for people who had already gotten the first round. And Scott, we should we should say, because, you know, it's March 17th that the program is currently slated in on March 31st. So anybody who's been sitting on the fence about this maybe needs to get off the fence and go put in their application for their PPP loan. So 
Um, I, obviously, the thing that attracted everybody I know's attention was 1% interest rate forgivable if you use it the right way. It's, it's you know, free money, like you said, from, well, I mean, there's no such thing as free money. It's coming out of other people, but uh, maybe our grandchildren, but uh it's 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 money to help stimulate the economy by keeping people including yourself if you are a self-employed person from losing their job during the pandemic yep. and apparently what you can borrow is up to 2 million dollars but it's based on what your monthly payroll was in 2019 so it is based on your payroll in 2019 so you get the, the maximum loan value is two and a half months for the first round, PPP. The second round, if you're in certain industries like hotels and um, I think restaurants are included, they, they actually can do three and a half months worth to get their loan number. Um, so it, but it's based on 19's number, but actually interesting, you can even base it on 2020 now hmm. for the second round which some people, it doesn't seem like it makes sense, but some people have more payroll in 2020 because their businesses come back, right? But they can, if they meet the qualifications for round uh, two, um, they can uh, get it. They, 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 can, they can basically um, get that two and a half uh, months based on 2020 and even round one, if you weren't, if you didn't, if you sat on the fence too long, didn't get it for round one, your round one this time can be based on 2020 as well. Mm-hmm. So there are some things you can look at. Do I want to base it on 19 or do I want to base it on 20? Mm-hmm. Actually have a, I actually have an email here from a listener that is a much more sophisticated question than I was going to ask. So I'm going to ask Mike's question instead he says, can part of the the payroll being covered by the PPP loan include paid sick leave? So that no. a lot of us have had, uh, you know, my I've had two members of my staff get COVID mm-hmm. and they were, you know, they're fine now, but they were, they got sick leave for a couple of weeks. Would I be able to count that? No, because the government paid you for that. The government didn't pay my employees for their sick leave. I paid my employees for their sick leave. Well, then you need to talk to somebody who tells you that you don't have to do that because you were required by law because they had COVID to pay them two months, or I'm sorry, not two months, (laughs) two weeks of paid pay plus 10 weeks uh, at a lower rate for for, uh, caring for an individual. So if, if my spouse, if I worked for you and my spouse had COVID and I had to take care of them, mm-hmm. you would, you by law have to pay me my two weeks of sick leave and you have to pay me up to another 10 weeks on a lower amount. But the government pays you for that. So I would say, Vina, that you need to maybe do some amendments because you can get the government to pay for that. I sure wish I, well, hey, I haven't filed my 2020 taxes yet. Maybe I can still make that happen. <laughs> Well, it's on payroll returns, so we have to go back and amend the quarterlies. But anyway, so so that is a thing. You can't. You they won't let you double dip. Um, but there is some other. There are some other credits that you can't use the same dollars. But there's a uh, an employee retention credit 
that before it was if you had the PPP loan, you couldn't get that, so you had to pick. Now they're saying you can have the PPP loan, but you can also have this employee retention credit, which is not about our call today. You just can't use it for the same payroll. Mm. So because you're only going to – you're going to use up – think about it. If you get two months' worth of a loan, how fast are you going to use that up? You're in about Pretty two quick months. on payroll. <laughs> right? So, But then the rest of the year, you could take the employee retention credit if you meet the guidelines for that. So <clears throat> that's, I think – now, the other thing on the second round, the other thing you have to make sure is that your, your income, you need to drop 25% when looking at one quarter's revenue in 2020 compared to the same quarter in 19. So if you have an interest in, if, if, if you want to do the, if you got the first round and you want to get the second round, you will look at your financials. So that's the key thing, right? A lot of real estate investors, do they have good financials? No. Do you mean organized? Sorry. No. <laughs> no, they no, they're not. They don't have good bookkeeping and they, it's hard records. So, but if I can have records, so for instance, I had somebody who flipped a bunch of houses in December or in in the second in the last quarter of nineteen, but in the last quarter of twenty, they flipped none. Mm-hmm. So their revenue went from whatever it was down to zero. So that's twenty five percent for sure, right? Mm-hmm. So they're eligible for the second PPP loan. Hmm. So, so the second, so you can get the first round and the second round. You can't get the first round and the second round now if you didn't get the first round. But if you got the first round back in 2020, you can get the second round uh, now. But you have to have a drop of 25%, at least one quarter, compared 19 to 20, same quarter. By the way, I want to throw out one thing, and this is not on our topic, but. The individual tax deadline has now been moved from April 15th to May 17th, just to let your listeners know. They got it here first. Uh, (laughs) Well, I got it here first. I think other people might pay more attention to stuff like that than I do, but that's always good news, I guess. And is that personal? The the, the corporate deadline is actually sometime later in the year. Did that get moved to? No, well, S corps and partnerships were three fifteen. They did not get moved. Ah. but a lot of people extended those, and there's no cost to do it. So mm-hmm. anyway, I know that's off topic, but I just that just came through from the IRS, so I wanted to make sure. Oh, know. oh, it literally is breaking news, then, huh? It is. It just came out. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so in the first round, yeah, we were we were dealing with a lot of stuff when the first round of the PPP came out. We yep. didn't we didn't know how bad COVID was going to be. We didn't, you know, know if what all the safety measures were. So I think some of the just the technical stuff got lost in the in the chaos that was happening then. And a lot of people missed that first chance because they didn't even know how to go <laughs> about applying for this loan. So can we can we talk about how that works? Sure. So to apply for a loan, you do actually do it through a bank. So most the banks that will write will give you this loan. That's backed by the government, the SBA. But the banks are the ones that underwrite it. They do all the 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 uh, collection of data, and you actually apply at the bank. Now most banks, you have to be have an account at that bank. So that's what still stymies some people. 
Um, but all the banks generally have a much – they've had a year to work on this process, right? It's almost like they developed software so they could, they could do this, and I guess it's going to be the norm from here on out. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> but the, the, it's much easier to do the application. The applications were cumbersome in the beginning because they were doing it fast. Nobody really knew what they were doing. I had bankers who were telling me you could do something, and I said, no, you can't. <laughs> I'm telling the bankers, you can't do that, and they didn't believe me, and uh, and they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's very easy. You go to your bank. Most of them have an online portal where you log in or call your banker, but most of them, the application is through an online portal. You're going to answer some simple questions. You're going to submit some minimal documentation, things like like if I'm if I'm, mine's based on payroll, I'm going to submit my 2019 uh, federal Form 941s. Um, I'm going to uh, also give them re- some payroll reports that show that they, well, I was in business on February 15th of 2020. And then for the most part, that's the information I need to provide to them. And and, and they'll do a calculation. Um, and the calculation can be a little bit, bit more involved if you want to get more money in there because the calculation can include your payroll, if you provide health insurance for your employees, uh, so any of those kind of benefits can be added to that, quote, payroll cost. So you would provide, you know, I would provide a copy of my monthly health insurance bill, my dental insurance bill, so that would show show that. And then, and then you're going to calculate it two and a half, right? You're going to take that monthly, average monthly payroll for the year, payroll cost, which can include the benefits, divide by two by 12, to get a monthly amount times by 2.5 to get the total loan amount two and a half months and that's my loan request that I'm going to submit we always submitted a Excel spreadsheet that showed that or you can handwrite it but I just like to make it easy for the person processing my loan mm-hmm. to know what they're supposed to loan me mm-hmm. um, so you do that if you're self-employed you don't have employees you typically provide your 2019 or 2020 form Schedule C, right? There's also partnership K1s you can you can deal with, um, but the the next biggest thing is the Schedule Cs. So you're going to look at your tax return, and that number you're going to either take it's line 31 your net profit, which you wouldn't want to do, or it's line seven, which is your gross profit. So let's say I'm flipping a house, right? I sell the house for 100. And it costs, and I've got 75 in it. So my gross profit is $25,000. I can use that number, or I can take all my expenses away and use 5,000, because that's my net profit after mileage and all that. So what do you want to use? Five or 25, right? Mm-hmm. So you want to use 25 for sure. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be able to upload that Schedule C to the bank, and that will be your loan amount. That'll be what they base your loan amount on. So it's relatively easy. Now, they've got it pretty much worked out, so it's very easy uh, to get that loan application processed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We just got a question that uh, I, I, we, we, need to, we need to answer it because um, it's both a good question and also hilarious. Uh, this questioner asked me not to read his name. He said, I'm really glad you're doing this topic today 
because I have a situation that I have been afraid to ask my bank or the SBA about. Will my PPP, okay. will my PPP, so he, he applied for a PP loan, PPP loan and apparently got it. And he said, I am wondering if my loan forgiveness amount will be reduced because I laid off an employee and then offered to rehire the same employee, but the employee declined the offer because he preferred to be on unemployment. Uh, no, actually, you want to document that, that he declined, uh, but it also depends on if you were um, uh, the amount is under $150,000, if, if you're under that amount, uh, you don't really, it, you don't have to meet a lot of the requirements that were originally set up with keeping X number of employees in, in, in employed, that kind of thing. You still have to spend... 60% on payroll. So that's where I think your dilemma happens. But you have you now have 24 weeks. So you you did the, you know, two and a half months worth of payroll. You just need to be able to spend that loan money within 24 weeks. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. should be pretty easy. That's more than twice what the loan amount's from. If you have no other employees, but if it was your employee plus your profit, because you're self-employed, your amount counts too, mm-hmm. up to a hundred thousand dollars. So, okay, well, yeah, I th- so I think you just he's gave not going to have a problem if an employee says, "I'm not, I'm not coming back to work," then that doesn't count against you. Okay, question from Imran: Is there going to be another round of the EIDL loans, the Economic Injury Disaster Loans that were set out for small businesses and nonprofits? Uh, you know, I don't know. I have an answer for that. I don't, uh, they spend trillions of dollars. Um, I don't know. It really hadn't been used up. It was available. I have not checked it recently. I think it ran out at the end of the year. Um, but I don't, I mean, the economic injury disaster loans are not new. They're actually, they're all the time. You'll, you'll use them in hurricane situations, stuff like that. This was sort of a weird one, right? There was no damage to my property, right? So it's it's not a disa- it's not a disaster from that standpoint, but it was a nationwide pandemic disaster. So honestly, I don't think it'll come back in that form unless the the vaccines don't work and we all get locked down again. <laughs> well, I don't know. It, it sort of feels like if if they were committed to that, it would have happened with the other trillion dollars worth of aid at the end of last year and that that's a probable no Imran well Scott we are out of time appreciate you taking time out of your busy day today to help update us on uh, the PPP loans so for the folks who are qualified for them you only got till March 31st so get at it and uh, for all listeners hope to see you tomorrow night Cincinnati RIA meeting that's CincinnatiRIA.com to get your registration we'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing until then happy investing 